welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. My name is Rabbi Miriam Cherlinchamp, and I'm your host. The previous episodes explored the six conversations from Peter Block's work. We journeyed through invitation, possibility, ownership, dissent, commitment, and gifts. For the next five episodes, we will speak to practitioners who are using these conversations in the world. Today, Brad Wise speaks with Rama Naidu. I'm Rama Naidu. I'm based in South Africa, and I am a community builder. I'd like to describe myself as a social architect, bringing people together to co-create a future that we want to live into. Rama shares how he was exposed to Peter's conversations and how Rama translates them into his South African context and work by emphasizing confrontation and support. Here's Rama. The first time I heard Peter speak, I just said, oh my goodness, this guy's putting into words everything that I feel and want to do. And I didn't have a structure to hang it on. So I was doing a leadership workshop and a team building workshop and a democracy workshop and you know, all these little things in pieces. And now I had a structure. I said, every time we meet, we have to have elements of all six conversations. It should direct the facilitation of the work. We should make space for that in the actual work. And because I was the director of the organization, which gave me great power and a board that was very compliant, thank goodness, I switched within one year, everything we did inside the organization. I completely changed the organization to live Peter's work. I put a proposal through to the European Union to do this work, and it was granted. It was a big grant across three provinces in South Africa. And I didn't expect it to come through, but when it did, I then had the enormous task of translating Peter's work into a training workshop over five days. And I had no idea where to start this. So I got the concept. But to take it into areas where there were language problems, the problems of, of culture, of diversity, of racial divisions, in that environment, it was very difficult to even talk about things like dissent, because people were still overly polite in this space. So I really designed a program around the six conversations and used it very experimentally to see how it played out. And every workshop I did, I learned something new and I learned it from the stories I heard. I learned it from people's reactions in the room. I learned what worked and what didn't work. I learned what language to use, not to use, what words to change. So it kept evolving as I did the work. Basically, the book and Peter changed my life. It changed my entire trajectory of what I was going to do. And I've lived it since that time in everything I do. So I work in a consultancy called Six Degree Shift, which is saying that, listen, we're all connected, and it's just six degree of connection that we need. All Peter's work is saying, actually, the connection is more important than the meeting. I said, okay, I'm going to put people into groups. People resisted it. They made me the expert in the room, tell us what to do. They were quiet. And so I had to provoke. I had to use my presence in a very powerful way to be more aware of what I was doing in the moment, to push people to the point where I both confronted and supported them confronted and supported them. And as the space began to slowly expand, the work took form, it took life. And after that, it doesn't matter whatever consulting work I do, I use the same small group methodology, 
I let people talk, we listen, I make space for dissent, all the stuff that Peter talks about. And every single time, the guys have an amazing experience. Something shifts in the room. And I think for me, the key is that whilst I'm holding the container, they're doing the work. That, that sense of ownership is embedded in the process. Each time they play it back to make me the expert, I resist that and push it back to them. So it becomes a bit of a joke. They know if they ask a question, I'm going to ask them, so what do you think? So, you know, as we play back and forth, the tension gets out of the room. And by day two, people are opening up a lot more. In the work that I do with Partners for Possibility, we bring together school principals who are mainly black from marginalized schools and fairly privileged white businessmen and women in the same room. And the idea is to see whether they can dip into each other's worlds and start it as a nation building project. So you go into a room and there's a white group of people who've never seen this part of the country. They've never heard the story. So when we start talking and sharing stories in small groups, the silence is so strong in that room. The methodology, that's the message. You create intimacy in spaces. Let people voice their dissent, share their stories, and the magic will happen without you. It just needs you to create the container. For me, it, it's living it in a very real way in the context in which I'm working. So I, I can shift it anytime because it's not a learned behavior. It's not something that I've decided to be a master facilitator. I've just internalized those conversations in my personal life and in my public life. So there's no different persona. And I think that's made it easier for me as I navigate the work. Everything you're saying makes so much sense. And I want to drop down even further to put skin on the bones and clothes on the skin and bring it to life even more. Any specific stories come to mind from past workshops that help with that? So recently we had a workshop in one of the townships and the conversation was a gifts conversation. And so what I normally do is I get people to write on cards something about themselves that people don't know about. A passion, a hobby, an interest. So I don't use the word gifts because the gifts word is loaded in our context. And people say, I don't have a gift. What are you talking about? It just takes too long. So I just change the language and write them down on cards, big cookie pens, and put the name on it. And then I stick it up on a wall. And I call that wall my gifts wall in a big hall. And I get people to walk up to the wall and see what's on the wall in this community. And they get blown away by what they see. Because all they see is the picture of poverty and deficit. That's the default story. When they look at the wall, they are plumbers and carpenters and teachers and musicians and singers and dancers and gardeners. They're all there on the wall. Let's listen. So if you have this wall and you see all this, what can you do with this? What would you do with this? And the idea started flowing out. Well, you know, we cluster them together and bring the gardeners together and bring the cooks together and bring the people who sew together and all these weird things. And so this one school, Namlazi, for some reason had an abundance of old ladies who were sewing for a living. Gogos who brought up their grandchildren and they would mend clothes for a living. And there were 10 or 12 of them. Average age about 60, 62. That was the age. They had these old machines that you turn with your hand and they would sew things. So we had this workshop in this community and we then put the different groups into different rooms with a different facilitator. I said, your only task is to put them into small groups, let them talk. 
I gave them a small introduction. You don't need to know everything. Just go into the room, put them in small groups, give them the good question. And the question is very simple. What can you do together for our children and community that you can't do on your own? That was the big question. And they had to break that down. And they had about two hours to explore that question in the group. So this group of ladies got into the room, very excited. And they were asking the what if question, possibilities. So what can we do together? And the default story was, ah, we can't do much. Our machines are old. People don't want to pay, you know, all the usual stories. So I asked the question to imagine a situation if the opposite was true. So what if you did something for this community? What would happen? So it was a, a imagining, but in a very practical way. And so one of the ladies said, so what if we could sew the uniforms for our girls at school? Mad idea. 800 girls in the school. That will never happen. But this lady said, you know what? This guy said, we must just think without limitations. So they went to the school principal who was already a part of the workshop. Said, you know what, sir? We want to sew uniforms for the girls at the school. We know we can sew it. What do you think? And he said, of course you can sew the uniforms for the kids. And to see how, how it plays out, right? He said, but there's a condition. It has to be as good as the other uniforms. You have to deliver it on time and you all have to work together. So you have to work out how you're going to do this. If you can go back and talk about that, yes, you can do the uniforms. What we were doing was bringing in the commitment and ownership question without mentioning the words. So they go back to the room and say, the principal said, yes, we can do the uniforms. So they said, sir, one other thing, can we use the school hall on a weekend so we can bring our stuff together? Our rooms are very small. They live in very small homes so we can work together to do uniforms. His answer was, of course. But when I come here on Monday, that hall must be absolutely clean. And I won't be sitting here on Saturday and Sunday guarding you. You're going to have to make sure that this place is safe. So as they were going through the experience of it, the conversations were being had without any mention of the theory. They didn't know the theory, but they were just talking in the room. So they said, so we can do that. So what did they do? They, they went to their old men, most of whom were retired, sitting at home doing nothing, and said, when we are working in the school, you stand outside with your, with your stick and you keep us safe. And the men loved that idea, right? The men loved that idea. So they could, they would guard the school. So now we are bringing community into school in a practical, and we were not doing anything. These ladies were doing it on their own. All we did was provided the container and the light touches to remind them, listen, this is your space. You're owning it. There's a responsibility. What's the commitment? How will you work? And they were doing Peter Block stuff without any of the language. And the last hurdle for them was that no money for the school uniforms. So every township has a local trader, you know, the old guy whose shop was there for like two centuries, who sells everything from, from canned stuff to wooden beams or whatever. They went to this guy and said, listen, we need cloth, you know, for the uniforms for 800 kids. He was great. He said, but we have no money. He says, well, how can I give you cloth if you have no money? He says, well, we have a contract from the school principal that says that you buy the uniforms. So the guy calls the principal and says, you know what? I've got these old ladies here. And he was very skeptical and they want cloth for the uniforms, but I don't know them. And the principal's answer is very clear. He says, you know what? These are ladies from our school. They're our mamas. They're our gogos. 
please, if you can help them, help them. So he gave them the clock on, on credit. This is all over a short period. It, it not, didn't take months to do. But because they saw the possibility. And they sold the uniforms. They got the clock. So a series of possibilities got life because they dared to step into the space of abundance. And I was invited to the final function when they got the uniforms made, the first uniform done. They wanted to present it at the assembly because it's a big deal, right? And the assembly day is an open space and a veranda and they stand on a bench and talk to the people. So on this Friday morning, 12 ladies, old ladies, dressed in their Sunday best, turned up at school and hold the uniform up high that they created for these kids. I mean, you can imagine the response of those kids. They were, they were dancing and screaming and it was community doing something for community. It was just a, an amazing experience. And people were very teary-eyed at the time because they didn't, didn't expect of everyone in the group, these go-go's to do something like that. You know, they wanted to expect the teachers or the wise guys will do something. But these old ladies, because they didn't have any filters, just went ahead and did it. And so for them, it was about gratitude. But they thanked the principal and he was very emotional about it. Thanked the, the girls who helped them with the uniforms, thanked each other for that. And they also invited that old trader to say thank you as well. Very old gentleman. This was the part that really touched everyone on that day. He says, you know, I've been here. My father was here. My grandfather was here in the same shop for more than 100 years. It is the first time I felt a part of this community. It is the first time I felt a part of this community. Thank you for the gift of bringing me in. People were gobsmacked because he just said it. And he said, my gift is the material is free. And it was a large amount of money, like 12 or 15,000 rand. He didn't wait for any applause. When he said it, there was no applause because people didn't believe he was actually saying it. And afterwards, people realized. And I asked him, I said, did you plan this thing? He said, no, I had no intention of doing that. But in that moment, as I saw what happened in the room at that assembly with the children screaming and these 12 ladies dressed in their best, something touched me. That spontaneity of being in the moment got life in that space. And I just said to myself, if Peter was here now, he would see all his work in a moment, in an instant. Peter often talks about the importance of confronting people with their freedom. As we take a breath and listen to a poem by David White, I'd like to invite you to consider the freedom you're being confronted with today. This poem is called, Everything is Waiting for You. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone, as if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely, even you, at times, have felt the grand array, the swelling presence and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must know the way the soap dish enables you, or the window latch grants you freedom. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. The stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. 
put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything is waiting for you. Deep breath in and out. We ask you to consider what freedom you're being confronted with today. Now as we return back to Rama, take a second, look around, and recognize how your surroundings are supporting you today. What it taught me was that if we spark the possibility and we have like-minded people who support it, like in this case, the school principal who supported it, he said, open the school. I said, stop being the caretaker of your school with the keys on your belt. That's your school. It's a community school. It belongs to our people. If you can't let go of that control, then you are the problem. You are the problem. You have to trust at some point, and sometimes people will let you down. They will let you down. The school will be dirty, but you can't let the one incident say, I'll never do this again. So it's a notion of, of constant confrontation and support, and I think a lot of compassion. People don't work to our timetable. They work to their timetable. And sometimes you have a workshop and it happened and nothing much happens at the workshop. People will have a good time, but there are no commitments at the end of it. And the principal is always disappointed. I say, don't be disappointed. Something is happening in the room. It's just not ready yet. You call a second meeting, design the invitation so that there is ownership, that there is a hurdle, that people turn up because they want to turn up. And even if it's 10 people, you will start something. And once they get that part, and very often I will tell people, when you start this work, it's a very lonely place. It's like you're trying to convert, you know, the preacher trying to convert people. That does not work. We've got to hold hands. And I always like to tell people, my facilitators, when they do this work, be in the shadow. You put the principal in front or the teacher or the community member and you stay in the shadow. It's not about us showing how great we are. It's them seeing their own people, showing leadership and standing there in front of that group and doing that work. And when they do it on their own, they get it very quickly. I can spend one hour teaching a principal about how to hold a workshop. We think about one question. I say, okay, you're going to ask the one question. You're going to put them into small groups and you're going to debrief this. And your voice must be the last one. Don't talk. All you say is welcome and thank you at the end. Nothing more. Leave it. Stay with the silence. Someone will speak at some point. And so they get jittery about it. But after the session, they're smiling. They, they got, oh my goodness, it was, it was so beautiful. And then they get it. So I think for me, the experience has been until you actually step into it, have a conversation, frame a question, and be aware, am I turning up as expert or co-creator? And when they get that very quickly, then I think the rest becomes a lot easier because then they're curious about wanting to do other things. But the theory is, is scary to people. So it has to be deeply experiential and starting with their stories. And most people don't even think their stories are worth sharing. 
until you, you know, you meet them and say, so what's happening at school and you know, what have you done? And so we'll sit together and plan three or four questions, soften it up, make the connection first before we start talking. So it's kind of massaging them into a place from the abstract notion, but we have now given them a language and a methodology. All we're doing is saying, ah, let him speak, let them finish their conversation. And if we create the container properly, something magical happens in the room. Maybe I'm looking for the recipe for a group of people listen to that story. What questions do you think would be useful for that group to reflect on together where it takes the story that's like very inspirational, but it's still out here? What kind of questions could bring it closer and maybe latch on a little bit more? I battle with that one, Brent, a lot, getting the right question. Because the question often people get confused by it. They don't understand it. So, you know, Peter says ambiguity is good. Let them stay in the ambiguity. But in real life, when you're speaking to principals, and they think it says, what the hell is this crap? You know, get on with it. And that's the reality, right? So it doesn't work. In the container, we can talk about it because we speak the language. But someone who doesn't understand the language is too much. So in my workshop, I take people through a process, which is the possibility conversation made real. And the way I do it is by first confronting them with the story of what is. So let's say in the context of a school, I will ask the question, what are the stories you keep hearing about our school and community? Share it in your group of three. That's a question. What are the stories you keep hearing? And then because I want to make it a, a group exercise so we all see it, I'll, say, I'll give them a flip chart paper and say, write down these stories on your paper. So I've got, imagine eight groups of people talking about the stories they hear. In, inadvertently, the stories are all about deficit and poverty and problems and challenges and the stuff that we know about, scarcity. And so I put that onto a wall and I just let them look at it and hold the silence and say, well, the stories that we create determine the future that we want. Wherever I go in this country, the same stories come up. So why are we surprised that all we get are more problems and more challenges? and that nothing changes. Every time we meet, it's, it's drugs, it's pregnancy, it's, it's the same things year after year after year. Surely by now as human beings, we must realize this is not working. So when they confront with the story of it, the question I ask is, do you want to stay here? Do you want to stay here? Or do you need to shift? No, we want to shift. And so the way to shift it for me is reimagining a future distinct from the past. Imagining a future distinct from the past. One of the stories they hear is that parents are not involved in the school. So they reframe it. And the question is, so what if parents were completely involved in the school? What would happen? What would happen? The limits to it is that there are no filters. There's no right or wrong answers. You can't judge what anyone says. You simply write down at least 12 things in your group that would happen if it were true, if parents were involved at the school. That's my take on how I do the workshop. And so they have lots of fun. There's lots of laughter in the room, mad, crazy ideas. And now on the wall, I have 60 possibilities. They envision 60 things that would happen if parents were involved at the school. The transition from their first story of poverty and deficit to all these things would happen that if it were true and the energy just shifts. There's a bustle in the room. So I'll say this thing sounds very good. 
Where could you start this work next week? Where could it be? Choose one of your 16 things that you can do quite quickly that won't cost you money. You won't need to ask for permission from the department. And it only requires your community and your educators and your children. So take all the extraneous things out, bring the community into a space. Where could you start it? And so when they look at all the possibilities, they'll say, okay, if parents were involved in the school, their children would be happy to see their parents at school. Just a, a mad idea. We would cut our budget by 50% because parents would offer what they want in the school. We'd have a vegetable garden. We can grow our own food. And they'd just go on and on. So they look at all 16 things and say, hey, where can we start this? And they might say, okay, you know what, what we can do? We can start with a vegetable garden. And so my point to them is, it does not matter where you start. You're working towards the big vision. You want parents to be more involved in school. And you're starting with a vegetable garden. Someone else is starting a little choir with parents teaching kids to sing. Someone's doing an art. It doesn't matter where you start. But if someone asked you what was the vision of your school, you could say very proudly at our school, our parents are fully involved in the school. Oh, what are you doing? Well, we're planting vegetables. That's a great answer for me. So now, not only did we shift the picture from scarcity to possibility, we gave them a roadmap, vision a new future, find an entry point, and think about where you can start the work. And most people in that room, because we asked them in the group, choose one school so it's real, it's not a simulation, it's real, that you can actually do it. So I'm in my small group, but I still belong to a community. And they see the similarities and the gifts. So the workshop is a lived experience of community in action. They're experiencing it in real time as they grapple with these notions. As the facilitator at the end of the workshop, you ask people about the experience. The biggest thing is about the connection. I never knew my partner until now. Thanks for listening. You can find more about Rama, Rad, and the conversations in the show notes. Also, the poem shared today was written by David White. The next Abundant Community Conversation will take place on September 15th. I'll speak with David and Peter about the phenomenology of conversation. You can find the registration link in the show notes as well. This episode was hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Terlinchamp, produced by the amazing Joey Taylor, and music is from Jeff Foreman.